Okay, great. So thanks for uh, coming in this afternoon. Better than tomorrow when we're going to have the uh, wintry weather all morning. So so enjoy this this day. It's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight. Uh, Dr. Courtney Falk is an information security professional with over 10 years of experience in government, academic, and public sectors. He earned his PhD at Purdue University and two other degrees from Purdue University, so, so he's one of our own. Uh, his research area was in applications of natural language processing and inf to information security problems. He currently works as a senior research scientist for Optiv in their Global Threat Intelligence Center. And with that, I am happy to turn it over to Courtney. Thank you, Jerry. So as Jerry mentioned, I'm a Purdue graduate. Um, I've done about five years of these seminars, so it feels good to be on the other side for a change. Um, time permitting, uh, I'd like to do a little uh, participation at the end. So if anything I say generates a great idea um, or like a, a spark, let's make sure to get that out there at the end. So I work for a company called Optiv. Um, within Optiv, we have a small group called the Global Threat Intelligence Center. So we're about 10, 12 people. Um, what we do, we call threat intelligence, which is kind of a loose term in the industry. But um, most of us here in the GTIC uh, have either law enforcement or intelligence backgrounds. So the way we do threat intelligence is very similar to the way um, the intelligence or the military intelligence will do it. And I'll give you a brief overview on what that will look like. Um, if you want to find more about what I've written or some of the resources, uh, you can find it on LinkedIn or ResearchGate. Um, not everything I write ends up getting published out in the wild, so you'll find more on there than you will in uh, like JSTOR. So where this talk came from, um, we in the GTIC are really interested in the people who prosecute the attacks, which is uh, the term is threat actor, which is really just a euphemism for bad guy. So anytime I say threat actor, I just mean bad guy. So we're interested in the bad guys, and we're interested in the campaigns. And campaigns are you know, just a series of related attacks. Um, it might be similar targets, similar TTP, similar infrastructure, that kind of thing. Everything I'm going to talk to you about today is from open source reporting. That means I'm not getting this either from classified sources or importantly for Optiv, I'm not going to tell you anything that I've learned from looking at our customers' data. Uh, we are a managed services company, which means we have a wide variety of customers from a wide variety of industries. Uh, we have uh, energy, we have entertainment, we have banking, um, and all these people have different requirements, and I want to make clear that I'm not going to tell you anything that they would not want shared with the public. So. This is really the second version of the talk I gave. The first version was at Optiv's um, uh, focus conference that we have every year in Indianapolis. The audience for that is usually non-technical or semi-technical. So um, I presented that with a different focus than I will here. I'm going to assume that this is a more technically minded audience. So I might geek out a bit more on the, the more um, uh, academic portions of it. So I'm sure you'll all be able to keep up. There's going to be three parts to the structure. I'm going to give you a real basic uh, overview on what threat intelligence is to us. I'm going to talk about the kind of philosophy that I'm uh, applying when I approach this problem. And then at the very end, we're going to run through some examples. And time permitting, I'd like to brainstorm with you guys. So uh, really, the meat and potatoes there are the threat intelligence and examples. But I'm sure that this audience was going to be perfectly capable of handling the more nitty-gritty philosophy parts of it. So threat intelligence, I've touched on briefly. Um, if you ever have to do threat intel or military intelligence or uh, intelligence, especially in the United States, you're going to see this either as a four or a five-piece um, cycle. It's the same thing. So what happens is intelligence is not intelligence until it gets analyzed down there by human. But it really starts with the requirements. And the requirements are they're basically like a research question. So everyone who's going to do a uh, research-based thesis or if you're going on to your um, doctoral thesis, you're going to need to scope your research question. 
and that's very similar to the problem of threat intelligence. Um, a good question is something that's concise and tight and easy to answer, but also sometimes you see how this comes, becomes a cycle. Sometimes the question is loose, and as we go through the process of gathering data and analyzing it, we start to understand what the limitations are, and maybe we have to refine our question and make it tighter, which is really academics right there. Sometimes you end up with a research question that's really too big or too vague, and you have to really scope it down because you, you're only supposed to be here for a couple years, not a couple decades. So keep it tight. And then dissemination, in your case, it would be uh, theses, published articles, or journal papers. Uh, for us, um, a lot of people who do threat intelligence basically focus on the dissemination part. Um, they disseminate uh, artifacts. Uh, the term of art is indicators of compromise, and there's there's various standards published, uh, XML and JSON formats that you can use, but those would be things like signatures for binaries that would identify malware, or signatures of network traffic that might identify uh, cryptocurrency mining, these kinds of things. Um, and as you look at this diagram, it kind of puts that into more context because yes, that is a product of threat intelligence and you see the analysis that feeds into dissemination. There needs to be that analysis there behind it, but a lot of people just go out and they, they subscribe to a data feed and they ingest these indicators and they say, we're doing threat intelligence. And unless you really understand the quality or the provenance or the background of where this data is coming from, you're kind of doing threat intelligence, but you need to think a little more critically about that. Uh, if you ever um, want to work in threat intelligence, you are going to see this also. This is from industry. This is Lockheed Martin's kill chain, which is a concept that comes uh, from the military world, which is the more morbid kill chain of how do you find a target and how do you destroy a target. This is a defensive-minded kill chain where these are the seven steps that will happen in any basic um, network intrusion. The kill chain model saying uh, you could stop an intrusion at any certain point. So understanding something about recon tells you how you need to harden your perimeter, maybe turn off services. Um, conversely, how, how you look at the C2, the command and control, the sixth stage. Are we analyzing our network traffic? Are we looking for suspicious out-of-band things? So it's a fine model in terms of abstractly understanding the way a network intrusion might go, and it's something that you'll need to know just to kind of get a basic conversation going, but there, there's gaps. Um, one of my favorite complaints is like, how would you model a distributed denial of service attack around the kill chain? Because really it stops either at delivery or partway through the exploit because uh, Denial of service is not interested in installing malware on your machine. It's not interested in exfiltrating anything. So is it an attack because it doesn't engage all seven steps? We're, we're not going to be too concerned about that today. Because uh, a lot of what we're focused on, as I said, are the threat actors, the bad guys, and their campaigns. So in threat intelligence, they've kind of converged on a set of categories for bad guys that are kind, they're not mutually agreed upon. There's really no single standard, but there's certain, there's certain ones you'll see over and over again. Um, you'll see the nation state, or um, if you see the term uh, advanced persistent threat, APT, oftentimes that's just a euphemism for nation state. So if someone says, um, oh, um, just yesterday there was uh, the articles they're saying a uh, new APT seen uh, in Middle East targets. So if you dig down deeper, what they're saying is either government-backed or government-trained hackers are going into um, targets within the Middle East from uh, Western Europe or uh, that's where they originated from. But So these are the kinds of categories you'll see. Cyber criminal, um, that's just a shorthand for people here who are here to steal your money or steal something that they can make money off of. Um, and those are the two where I'm gonna focus on today. 
because one of my complaints is when you think this way, when you think that it's easy to drop your adversary or threat actor into a single bucket and understand something about them, you're really narrowing what you can achieve with threat intelligence and you're narrowing the logic you're using to think with. So uh, I'm really not going to talk about some of the others, but you'll see uh, insider threats, you'll see the ideological threats, which will be, um, that's, that's a huge bucket. It could be hacktivists like Anonymous, it could be like Syrian Electronic Army. Um, it, 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 so these categories are not like uh, evenly sized. Uh, this is just something that we do um, in the GTIC. When we get uh, a bad guy or a threat actor, uh, we, we analyze them according to six different dimensions, um, and then we, we, we assign them a single score, but what I like to point out is that single score in the middle is not mutually uh, comparable. So you, it's totally possible to get two different threat actors with the same score, but that doesn't mean that they operate the same way or that they're equally dangerous. So we include um, a couple more dimensions. You see these radar charts. These dimensions are, it's still kind of narrow, but we're trying to give people semi-technical, non-technical management a way to compare these and perhaps think a little more critically about <coughs> what threats are gonna be important to them. Because remember, we're a services provider, so um, here, down here at the bottom, I'm picking on uh, Lazarus Group, which has been uh, attributed to North Korea. And we give them a score of 78. Um, it's a little fuzzy from the graphic, but um, their abilities to, uh, they're highly organized. Um, they're very covert in the way they, um, they proceed. Um, and we use some of these icons to, at a glance, give an idea of the kind of targets they hit. Um, critical infrastructure, financial services, and telecommunications. So that's just a quick, this is an example of a product, uh, something we disseminate with our reporting. So that's, that's the superficial of what threat intelligence is. Um, so let's actually get into this more about um, threat actor categories and specifically the nation states and the criminals. So there's a couple different ways you could go about creating groups. You can go top down or bottom up. That's those are the two general approaches you can take. Um, most, of the, most of the people who have gone about creating threat actor categories have gone bottom up. They've kind of pooled people together and they've said these guys mostly exhibit this characteristic so we'll create a, a class over here and we'll call them criminal or so on and so forth. And that's okay, but there's kind of limits to scalability. And furthermore, my complaint is it kind of obfuscates the logic you should be applying when you think critically about threat actors. Um, not all cyber criminals are uh, created equal. Just today, um, there's been a campaign going on. It's been discovered for the better part of a year, but it probably went on longer, and it's called MAGECART, M-A-G-E-C-A-R-T. Um, it's been tied to really big breaches, uh, British Airways, uh, New Egg, um, Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster is the one where Magecart really became identified. And the reporting today from uh, Risk IQ is that they've, they're starting to break out. It's not just this monolithic group that we call Magecart, that there's possibly upwards of seven different individuals or subgroups that might be lumped together in these different intrusions. So if we just create like really big monolithic categories and we blindly drop people into these categories, we start to lose this kind of fine granularity when we really need to be digging deeper. And I want to kind of establish some logical grounding that we can use to do that. So I talked about um, no standard definition for these threat actor groups. I talked about how people do this kind of bottom up. Uh, this is a little bit of the research I went through. Um, some of these are government, most of these are industry, but you'll see um, only like three have all the same, uh, only three of the threat actor categories really cut across all the different systems that people deploy. Um, you see uh, SecureWorks is the only person who's really interested in defining uh, a corporate or 
like industrial espionage kind of threat actor by itself. Um, you see some people break down insider threats between um, what is intentional, which would be like, um, uh, I'll pick on Edward Snowden, someone who's knowingly doing something malicious, versus, um, you know, if you, if you have an absent-minded employee who uh, bumps a server rack and the whole system goes down, that would not be malicious, but perhaps because of their access, they created a situation inadvertently. So this is the kind of situation we're looking at. There, there's really no unified system. So how do we approach this in a more logical way? Um, creating buckets isn't really scalable. So, um, and more importantly, you should not think about these categories as being mutually exclusive. Um, one of the, the patterns we're seeing among threat actors in the last year especially is kind of blending across categories. So really, if you used to drop someone in the hacktivist category, well, now they're starting to uh, show signs of being entrepreneurs, and they're actually starting businesses, and they're taking their skills, and they're making money off of it. So are they still hacktivists? At what point does that change? And if you wanted to treat these as like primitives and say that any threat actor could be defined as one or more of these, well, every time you decide to create a new category, uh, your model is increasing exponentially. Um, with any sufficiently small model, that's not a huge problem. But what I'm getting at here is that it's not thinking very logically about how we should be defining these groups. So what I was doing was um, applying some of the abstract ideas I did during my dissertation. Uh, one of the things I do um, in addition to information security is thinking about uh, ontologies and knowledge representation. So I started thinking, um, are these all the same kind of group? Um, how, how do they really different, differ logically? And one big distinction I came up with was uh, kind of functional and structural. So a structural relationship would be um, something that is like inherent to how the group was formed or how they exist. So um, the nation state up here, you can't really see the laser, but the nation state up here, um, that would be a structural um, relationship. They would be a category created from their structural nature because uh, you don't have a nation state actor without them being uh, part of a larger group. So you're creating this kind of uh, part whole relationship um, and that's, that's the structure versus the criminal. Like you don't, um, you don't go out and get your criminal badge and now you're a certified criminal, really you become a criminal by the things you do. So that's a functional relationship. By virtue of you participating in these acts and these events, that is defining you as this particular category. So that's the fundamental distinction I was looking to build upon is this kind of structural and functional nature. And when we start from that, that's a good way to start designing our, in my case, an ontology or a knowledge representation so we can start to better classify these. And what we'll see is when you start to commit certain threat actors to certain types of relationships, you're starting to create the logical uh, relationships that will define whether or not they can and cannot be related. So um, the, the kind of joke I include there is, can there be a radical capitalist eco-terrorist threat actor group? So when you think about that, you have to think, what are the kind of belief systems that are being uh, attested to here? Are these belief systems mutually compatible? Do we need to model that in our knowledge base? So let's look at uh, nation state actors first. Um, so as I mentioned, uh, APTs are usually a euphemism for the nation states. Uh, so we're gonna focus solely on uh, the kind of sovereign nations. We're gonna kind of gloss over some of the messier situations around the world. Um, when we talk about nation states uh, within the scope of this, we're gonna talk about uh, police services, intelligence services, military services. These would be groups that are formal parts of the power structure. So in certain places around the world, you might find uh, like paramilitary groups 
that are not formally part of the, the government structure, but do kind of follow the tacit orders that are given to them, we're going to exclude that for the time being. So when I say nation state, I mean the formal government power structures that are in place. Um, and also, there's a brief caveat at the bottom. Um, in order to keep this simple, when I talk about espionage, uh, I'm not going to be talking about espionage in the context of like theft for money. So we're just trying to scope this down so we can keep the research question simple. Uh, I've already complained about APT before. So when you define a, a term like this, you're really making this uh, kind of topical. It's kind of scoped in time. Um, what is advanced isn't advanced anymore. Uh, shadow brokers and uh, shadow brokers leaked what they said was the toolkit for the National Security Agency, uh, Vault 7. That was the leak for what they attributed to uh, the Central Intelligence Agency. Um, hacking team, uh, the Italian company, had their tool set leaked. Really, when you have first-tier tools, zero-day exploits being dropped freely into the hands of everybody who's advanced anymore, it really undercuts the whole definition of the term of what you're looking for. And we saw that. Like, within a couple months, the, the exploits that are being attributed to the National Security Agency were being used by everybody. WannaCry and crypto miners, everybody had it. It wasn't advanced anymore. Persistence is a little better, um, but really any sufficiently aware threat actor is going to think very carefully about the operation security they use when they approach a target. Not everybody is going to use their zero day on a mom and pop online store. Um, so it's okay, but really the persistence says more about the target than it does the agent. So cyber criminals, the second group we're going to focus on, when I say cyber criminal, I'm talking about people who want to steal your money or they want to steal something that they can directly turn into money. So it's a financial motivation. Um, one of the things we see is that um, your personal information is not necessarily valuable. Um, I would say your social security number, credit card number might be worth five cents. But really what criminals tend to do is they will get a large block of data and then they'll, they'll repackage that and they'll sell that on in the markets and the deep web and the dark net. So it's not like someone's going to go say, I've got one social security number, I want 20 bucks for it. They actually have like service guarantees. So they'll be like, I've got uh, 500 um, Icelandic cell phone accounts. I'm going to guarantee 30% are active and I'm asking $5,000 or, you know, Bitcoin or whatever. So the economics are a little different than what people are led to believe. Um, and there's some more difficulties about this because what one trend we've seen in the last year or two is that criminals are exhibiting the same kind of specialized skills and behaviors that we would see in any kind of uh, stratified economy. So we were calling that commodification in our 2017 report, which is uh, available online if you want to give Optive your email address. Um, one thing we've seen is that you used to have to write your own phishing email, you had to write your own malware, you had to host your own server that the malware would call back to you, you had to have your, host your own command and control infrastructure, and that's not the case anymore. You can go to markets and you can pull down components and then buy it. You can uh, have people write your phishing email for you. If, if you need a Russian email and you don't speak Russian or you don't speak English, you could have it written for you. You buy the components and that lowers the risk, but it keeps the return high. So um, with enough results, if you throw it out wide enough, you can still make money, which is why ransomware is still a thing, which is why um, cryptocurrency mining, crypto jacking has become a thing. When you lower the risk low enough, even a small fraction of successful attacks makes it economically viable for people to do this. So this is the kind of sophisticated criminal activity we're starting to see. 
So what I'm really interested in is um, the blurring of lines between threat actor categories, and specifically for this talk, the nation state and the criminal. Um, I started thinking because um, when it comes to like geopolitics, throwing around the term criminal becomes rhetoric, right? So we don't like them, we're gonna call them criminal because you know it makes them look bad and people are gonna listen to us. But I was interested in a more formal definition, which is why I was going into the logic of how you define these different groups. And what I uh, came up with is three, three general kind of relationships that I want to be able to model in this kind of ontological approach. And so we're going to go through them real quick with some real world examples. Um, the three kinds of relationships that I've seen between uh, nation states and criminals boils down to uh, coercion, which is basically the nation state takes criminals that are within their, their actual territory uh, space that they can control and twists their arm, threatens them, buys them off to do their bidding. Uh, the second is hiring, which is treating the criminals as a kind of talent pool if they have skills um, that you don't have. Or uh, I talked about operations security. If you want something done and you don't want to waste your best malware or your best servers, you could just pay someone else to do it for you and achieve similar results. Or three, the trickiest one, when is the nation actually the criminal? Um, so I talked about the kind of functional and structural relationships, and that's why I picked nation state and criminal, because I talked about how nation state is a kind of structural relationship and criminal is kind of functional. So we can look at how these two structural and functional relationships start to connect the different groups together. Um, I start out this project really trying to avoid um, ethical judgments, but the more I dig into it, it kind of becomes um, intertwined. So I'll, I'll try to make that explicit where I can. So the first relationship, um, I'm going to pick on Russia and China here, is coercion. So when you have control over a certain part of your territory, control means basically the assertion of power. And that power can be violence and law enforcement and property rights. So this kind of relationship is where you go to somebody and you basically say, I know who you are, I know what you do. You're now gonna listen to everything I have to tell you. And if you don't, well, we're gonna take you off and to the place where no one will ever find you. Um, which works rather well if you're willing to make that kind of ethical decision that you're willing to threaten somebody. Um, and the nature of these relationships is often, um, we know who you are, you will do what we tell you, and furthermore, you're not gonna hack anyone within our territory. So typically what that looks like is, like if you are a if you're a threat actor based in Russia, you typically will not hack Russian targets. So they're buying themselves this kind of capability and they're also buying themselves some kind of reprieve. So when I see threat reporting, like uh, there was a Russian bank that was hacked earlier this year, the first thought in my mind was, well, it probably didn't come from Russia because that would not stand. They wouldn't let something like that go unnoticed. The benefit of that is uh, plausible deniability, uh, that's a quote from um, President Putin. Um, how can I possibly stop it if these are, if these are strong patriots? Which, that's kind of creepy because it sounds very familiar to other Western leaders. Um, but I mean, yeah, that's a plausible deniability right there. And he, he's throwing it in people's faces. He's like, well, yeah, it wasn't us. I mean, how can we possibly stop them? Uh, the downside is this is not really a stable relationship. Um, and there was an interesting reporting. If, if you'd like a copy of these slides, by the way, my email's at the end and I'll send it. Um, there, there are links in here to the, to the primary sources. And one of the sources is a report that this kind of relationship is under strain within Russia because 
new tools, uh, cryptocurrency especially, is creating a situation where um, the Russian government cannot use tools like access to banks and financial transfers to exert power over these threat actor groups. Now they can literally create their own money, they can move it on the dark net, so that's starting to take away some of the le levers of power. So long term, that might be a bad kind of situation to get yourself into. The second relationship is when you hire the bad guys yourself. Um, so these mugshots here at the bottom, they belong to um, a group that's been attributed to, uh, they're called the Meb Mebna Institute. Um, I'm sorry, I don't speak Farsi. Um, this is, these are mugshots from uh, FBI, DHS, DOJ indictment. So what, what this means is the DA, DOJ was comfortable enough in the level of confidence in the intelligence that they're willing to bring a criminal charge. And what this, what this means, um, they're basically willing to burn the ways that they gathered this intelligence. So when you present something in court, usually you have to prove where it came from and why you have confidence in that. And uh, that's why you often see a gap between intelligence and law enforcement because the intelligence are like, we've spent years getting this information. We can't tell you how we got it because then that gets burned. So when you see actual indictments come down for named groups, um, uh, either the Institute or uh, the Internet Research Agency, someone has made the decision that I'm willing to burn all this hard work for the sake of this indictment. And that's not something that you'll see approached lightly, at least within the United States. I can't speak to other uh, justices around the world. This kind of situation, um, they were actually hiring the group and they were giving them tasking and then what would happen would be uh, the group would get to sell this um, back so they would go out they'd get tasking to steal intellectual property and then they would sell this back to uh, Iranian based universities research institu institutes and companies um, because while there there's been a long tradition of um, uh, trade bans and so on and so forth, there's, been, there's still an indigenous industry in Iran that is very eager and interested to build their own things. So this is very valuable to them. The pros of this kind of approach are, um, well, the US government has turned to contracting very heavily. I mean, it's quick and it's easy. You can have short-term contracts. You can, you, you can define the requirements. Uh, the downside is, I mean, if you hire them, someone else can hire them. Um, they might not be available so on and so forth. And the third and the final category is when are you yourself the bad guy? Um, so this was some reporting we are working on. Uh, Lazarus Group is the biggest best known group um, that's been attributed to North Korea. Um, it's been traced back to uh, particular military intelligence groups. Um, and something that I was really interested in is Internet access in North Korea is so very limited and so very restricted. It seems silly uh, to think that it's some, some group of bad guys in the back alleys. Because access is so limited, uh, you don't get the sufficient population to create that kind of um, criminal underworld kind of interest. So it really makes the case, it makes deniability really difficult when it's the small body of people who could possibly be using the network for this kind of um, malicious activity. Um, I mean, the, the pros of this are obvious. You, get, you call all the shots. The downside is it's really not deniable. But I mean, at this point, do they, do they really care? So those were the three kind of relationships this one really highlights what I was harping on about the structural relationships versus the functional. If, if a criminal was also a structural relation, then you would have to create a whole new category called the nation state that is a criminal. But really, I mean, there's nothing to say that, um, you know, next week North Korea couldn't turn around and tear down the fence at the DMZ and, you know, throw other tanks in the ocean. We really live in weird times. I wouldn't doubt that as a possibility. 
So if you create that kind of structural relationship, you're locking someone in um, to a situation that might not be representative of the future. Uh, when I gave this talk in Indianapolis, a fellow came into the room um, from Berkeley, Dr. Clifford Stoll. He's famous because he wrote a book called The Cuckoo's Egg, which if you haven't read, I recommend because it's, it's accessible and it's entertaining. Um, in the 80s, he was um, working at Berkeley. He's a trained astronomer, so it's important to know he comes from a hard science background. Um, Afterwards, when he was doing the keynote, he kind of picked on my talk a little because I was hedging. And I said, we, we can't really know for certain. Uh, I mean, especially when we go back to these kind of relationships, you know, I, I can't really say for certain that Vladimir Putin knew for a fact that this was going on. I, like, that intelligence doesn't exist. If it does, I will never see it. Um, and him as a hard scientist, he, he really said, well, we have to know. But in terms of like philosophy and epistemology, there's, there's levels of certainty that we can be define and be comfortable with. But what's interesting about his situation is, as an astronomer, as a hard scientist, he wanted to know for certain. So this was 86. This is um, literally when phones used electromechanical switches. So. Um, when you made a call, there would be a room with a giant cabinet and levers would click back and forth to cre create the physical circuit for you, which is relevant to how the kind of work they had to go through to trace this internationally. But what he did was he created a um, uh, honeypot. So he created something called SDINet, which didn't exist. If, uh, if you don't recall, in the 80s, the Strategic Defense Initiative was a program um, started by the United States, we were going to put like lasers in the sky and we we're going to put missiles on the ground such that we could take out any intercontinental ballistic missiles. Also sounds familiar, but it was a program that went nowhere, but at the time it, it was hot and it was high tech. Uh, so he created something that basically made it sound like we're going to create a whole special network just for discussing this. Um, he's like, how, how can these bad guys possibly refuse this and and he knew that this guy had gotten into their network and had gotten through several other networks because they had bounced out of Berkeley back through other uh, other contacts on the ARPANET so what happened was they traced it back to Hanover uh, in the FDR which was a country that used to be called Western Germany a guy named Marcus Hess so they traced it back to him through the electromechanical switches he was stealing this um, basically on contract for the DDR, the East Germans, who um, he saw them pick up the SDI net, went back through West Germany. So everything on the right, like we don't know for a fact happened, but we can't see what the output of that system was. It basically bounced through the DDR, through the USSR, through communist Hungary, because one day he got a letter in Berkeley from a Hungarian consulate officer in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, named uh, Laszlo. And he said, hey, I heard you've got this thing called SDINet. I'd really like to learn more. Here's my address. So he could, he created this experiment basically where he could trace the taint from SDINet all the way through to the contact from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's the ideal case. That's really what everyone in threat intelligence wants to see. You will almost never see that. You will almost never have this level of confidence. So I don't want you all to go out and try to get a job in threat intelligence thinking you'll make this kind of cool discovery. This almost never happens. But it's a really fun story to tell. And now that he's not here, I'm comfortable telling the story on his behalf because he can tell it better. Um, and I talked real quick about the kind of blending of threat actors, and this was only about nation states and cyber criminals. But here's real brief some of the other stuff we've been seeing. Um, we've seen nation state actors start to emulate the way that the kind of hacktivist groups operate. So it used to be that um, hacking someone's email server 
stealing their emails and embarrassing them about publishing it online. That used to be something you could do to like uh, name and shame um, bad corporations, people you wanted to embarrass. Um, and remember during the 2016 presidential election here in the United States, that's exactly what we saw. So um, the fake persona Jucifer 2.0, which was imitating a previous hacktivist um, who's actually now getting extradited from Romania, they were impersonating him and it really turned out to be um, GRU, uh, Russian military intelligence. Um, so you're seeing people adopt the ways other people act to kind of hide behind these fake facades. Um, and script kitties and criminals, this is an interesting story. Uh, Lizard Squad was a bunch of just kids and they were running a DDoS crew and they're infamous for taking down both uh, Xbox Live and PlayStation Network over one Christmas um, and they thought it was hilarious. Um, a couple of them got a, a, a spark and they created something called Poodle Corp. So a subset of these um, script kitties uh, went corporate and this is a screenshot of the Poodle Stressor um, and a stressor is just a euphemism for uh, a DDoS tool, right? So if you want to, you need to stress your net, your website to make sure it will handle load. Um, well, I mean, no one's saying you're not stressing someone's website for them. Um, so, I mean, they're charging hundreds of dollars based on how much, how long, and how big uh, a stress you needed to apply, um, but. In the last year or two, they all got arrested. There was uh, one Irish kid and one Dutch kid and one American kid. And even now, years later, I think they were all like 16 and 17. So people, people, these groups are maturing. And as they mature, they change, which really complicates the picture for people who do threat intelligence. Uh, it's not so easy just to drop someone in a category. You can't really leave them in a category anymore. You need to revisit and think critically about um, the motivations behind that categorization. So uh, I, I asked to do some brainstorming. Um, so we got about five minutes left and I kept a couple um, scenarios back at the end. Um, so if you have other scenarios you've had rattling around your head we can possibly touch on those. This is a group I'm picking on right here. Um, I talked about Vault 7, I talked about shadow brokers. This is another group. Um, this is a corporation. So they will sell um, malware and they'll, they'll sell exploits and they'll sell all the related tools, the servers for operating them. Uh, they're based out of the UK and the Germany. They're called Gamma Group. And they also lost their tools. So if you go out, um, FinFisher is their main product. Um, you could probably, on some sketchy websites, download your own copy of it at this point. Don't, because of the sites you would probably need to go to. You don't want your browser to be loading. Um, and they became under scrutiny um, because, and this is an ethical judgment, um, the kinds of countries that they were selling their products to and the kind of applications that they were, these products were being used on. So. Um, uh, Citizen Lab is based out of Toronto. They do interesting reporting. Um, I think they were also people who revealed uh, GhostNet, which was an intrusion into the Tibetan government in exile. So uh, their specific beef in this case was this kind of software was discovered in the uh, offices of the internal security agencies in Egypt. So after um, the government fell the first time. The people found contracts connecting this and targeting lists and so on and so forth. So what I'm trying to think of here is at what point, um, what point does a nation state overlap with a corporate actor? So I talked about structural relationships and these are different structures, right? You have a nation state and uh, they have the agencies and the police underneath them, and you've got a corporate entity. So these are structurally very different things. Um, in basically, a corporation can exist independent of a nation state. So 
what's the relationship at play here? Um, is this a useful way for classifying a threat actor? Um, and I'm seriously asking this because I don't have a firm answer yet. I haven't come up with a, a good answer that satisfies me. Um, and I, this, this also kind of gets down to the ethics of it. Um, you know, am I picking on somebody because I don't agree with them? Like, you know, not everyone lives in a liberal Western democracy. Am I going to hold that against them? Um, is that, am I playing the moral high ground when I don't have it? Um, does anyone have any, any thoughts that spring to mind? this is like because uh, like uh, uh, proxies like can be uh, manipulated mm -hmm. and plus uh, like if you have uh, like an anonymous network like Tor or something I don't know how how like accurate this is or like it might be some bad guys like intentionally trying to uh, mislead us or, like I don't know so um, there was a report that came out yesterday you might like to look up. I, I haven't read it in its entirety. They're calling a new threat actor group a white company. And what happened was they found them because a plumber in Belgium, his website ended up hacking, I think, a government agency in Pakistan. Um, so I'm sure a Belgian plumber didn't have a beef with the Pakistani government. <laughs> and the, the byline of the report suggests that these people are either Western U.S. or trained by U.S. sources, which is exactly the kind of problem you're highlighting. Um, and and that, that's a more fundamental problem of threat intelligence. That's, that's why I was like, you will almost never see this, and why, why I didn't feel like that was really a valid criticism on the part of Dr. Stoll is you almost will never have that level of confidence. Now, there's a report out from uh, FireEye called uh, their APT1 report. And basically what they did with that was they basically pointed the finger at China. And they pointed actually at a very specific group of people. To do that, they had to collect data both across a long period of time and across a wide variety of sources. And they could do that because Mandiant at the time, now FireEye, they had a lot of customers who were all being targeted by the same group. So they could pull all this data that was coming across from multiple proxies and then basically reassemble the source on the back end beyond the proxies and then trace its source back. So like you or me operating as an individual we probably would not be able to make that determination. Um, there are situations where people make a mistake. Um, malware is uh, compiled with somebody's name in it, which has happened. Um, uh, I'm not going to tell you how to get around that, but yes, so that is a realistic problem, and, and it can taint it, um, and some reports end up getting invalidated because it's wrong. I'm, I'm generally confident in the quality of the information that comes out of Citizen Lab, just with the caveat that, um, I mean, th their angle is liberal Western democracy, uh, freedom of speech, and these are the kinds of things they are advocating for. So when you think about sources of information, it's useful to think about, do they have an angle? Um, I, I like to um, prefer primary sources and not... Um, there's a proliferation of journalists who basically just retweet news articles. So it's like why you don't, you never cite Wikipedia, go to the primary sources. Try not to cite the, the journalist and try to dig back to the primary reporting that would come from either a nonprofit like this or a company if you're comfortable with that. And then also, you know, where is this company located? Who are they staffed by? So on and so forth. Um, and we're out of time, so I'll just touch on this real quick. Um, this was a situation where um, this guy down here, I, I don't speak Vietnamese, so I'm not going to butcher his name. 
He was a cleared employee with the U.S. government. Um, and one day, the uh, Israelis came to the United States and said, we found something. It looks like your stuff. And what they did was they, I talked about how you release an indictment in a court and you burn yourself. So the Israelis felt very strongly, they, and they revealed, we have accesses into this company in Russia called Kaspersky. Um, we found some very interesting stuff that they collected. It looks like your tools. And what happened was this guy had uh, Kaspersky antivirus installed on his home machine. He had downloaded some um, software, brought it home so he could work after hours. Um, because when you work in the U.S. government, you don't work overtime unless it's pre-approved. Uh, so he's trying to catch up. Um, so what I'm trying to puzzle through here is, um, I mean, is this enough of an attribution to say that Kaspersky was collaborating with the Russian government? Um, I mean, at the risk of being mean, um, you know, what are the motivations of Israeli intelligence in uh, providing this kind of information? Uh, it's still not clear at my point. And you'll find people online who, who, who are willing to argue about Eugene Kaspersky and pick on him. So you could find both sides of the argument there. Uh, if you want a copy of these slides or you have other questions, you can reach me here. This is my work address, uh, Courtney Falk at Optiv. I'd be happy to... Uh, send you anything I have. Uh, most of the stuff should be available online. Uh, like I said, if you want a copy of our long report, our annual report, just expect uh, marketing to keep a copy of your email address. So that is all I have. Um, thank you very much, and uh, try and stay warm and dry tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs>